Welcome to the Transkit Podcast. This is a special episode where we'll be focusing on banks' earnings. We are privileged to have Mark Pinstein, the former hedge fund analyst, and he focuses now on writing on financials mostly. Welcome, Mark. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe a, a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of your various partner. As you said, Eric, I'm a financial analyst with an explicit focus on financial companies, on banks, insurance companies asset management companies, and so on. I did that as an investor in a hedge fund for 10 years. I was a partner in a London-based hedge fund called Lansdowne Partners. We ran a fund that launched before the financial crisis, invested during the financial crisis, and then we ultimately wound it up a number of years after the financial crisis, focused exclusively on banks and insurance companies and asset management companies. But my history with them goes back even further than that because I was a sell-side analyst. I worked at Credit Suisse for a number of years looking at European banks. Actually, my very first job, you will be interested to know, was as a Swedish banks analyst. I used to make regular trips between London and Stockholm looking at Swedish banks as they privatized as they came back out of government hands after the nationalization of them in the 1990s. That makes sense because in one of the latest articles that you wrote about Klarna, I noticed you linked to the board meetings of companies in Sweden and that was in Swedish. I was a bit surprised that someone had such a fine knowledge about Swedish companies. Those who don't know, most minutes of board meetings for Swedish companies that are available online for downloading at a small fee. So adding season, you spent a lot of time as an analyst, maybe as a mutual manager. Maybe you can give us a quick overview of what happens during the earnings season for analysts. It's a great tradition, the earnings call. It used to be going back many, many years before telephony democratized earnings calls, that analysts were called into a room. And the CEO, head of investor relations, CFO, would present the quarterly results to a room full of analysts. Clearly now, initially because of conference calls and then because of Zoom, you don't physically have to go to a room anymore. But once a quarter, the bank, any company will present its earnings to its shareholders. Actually, there were some exceptions within the banking sector, Wells Fargo up until relatively recently, dispensed with the idea. They released alongside their financial report and accounts, a kind of a transcript, and that was it. There was no recourse for analysts to ask questions. That was it. Actually, Berkshire Hathaway is another exception. They don't do uh, a quarterly call with analysts, but most financial companies do. For banks, it's particularly interesting for two reasons. Firstly, they are early in the earnings cycle. Bank, I think traditionally, actually Alcoa has been the first US company to report, but JP Morgan comes pretty soon afterwards, usually kind of the 14th of the month, two weeks after the end of the quarter, which is quite an achievement for a large, complex organization, such as a bank, trillions of dollars of assets to be able to turn its books around in the space of two weeks and report to the market what those numbers are is quite an achievement, but they come quite soon. So one reason why there's a heavy focus, I think, on banks' earnings is because they're early in the season and 
possibly set the tone. And secondly, is because they're a good window into the economy. Banks, we'll go in and talk about some of the detail later. Bank of America has got 35 million accounts across the US. So unique access into what's going on in US households. And they even gave a July update when they reported really kind of almost like a real time update window into what's going on in the economy. I'm actually very impressed that the US banks gets to report two weeks after the end of the season, because for comparison, I would say Kenyan banks, they come from, they take like two months to actually report earnings. So to get all these entities, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, they are very big. So to get them reporting back soon after the end of a quarter, it's quite impressive, so to speak. But then I'll come back and maybe ask you then, it, you've talked about JP Morgan, you talked about Gold, Goldman Sachs and all, and Wells Fargo. But what are the big banks in the US that uh, people pay attention to most? Maybe you can map for us how the US banking industry looks like uh, from your perspective. And actually, just to back up, you make a really interesting point. It's a good reflection on risk management. One would hope as an outsider that banks would have real-time valuations of all of their assets and liabilities and converting that to reporting for external consumption shouldn't be too laborious a process. So they should be able to do it pretty quickly. And I would be nervous about a bank that isn't able to report as quickly. The big banks in the US, there are kind of five of them that dominate. They are Bank of America, Citi, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, and PNC as well. And then you have those with more of a capital markets focus. That would include Citi and JP Morgan as well. But we bring into that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. We can drill down into this, but Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan attracts a lot of publicity. He's an excellent CEO. He has longevity. I think he's the longest serving. CEO of a bank globally, the CEO of HDFC Bank in India was around for a while longer, but he retired just over a year ago. I think Jamie Dimon now might be the longest serving CEO of a public bank globally. So he has longevity, he's seen cycles, he speaks very well, and he obviously sits on top of one of the largest, if not the largest bank in the world, and they report early. So. Multiple reasons why market participants would listen to Jamie Dimon. But Bill Demchek, who is the CEO of PNC, sits not far behind, actually, has a background in capital markets. So kind of is able to talk to capital markets as well as retail banking. PNC, through a series of acquisitions, is now kind of call it the largest super regional bank alongside USB. We didn't mention US Bancorp is another one, two of them largest super regional banks in the US, much more domestic than the others, much more focused on retail banking than the others. Bill Demchek is excellent. We can go in later to some of the things he said on his call, but definitely another one to listen to. And then you have the Bank of America who have a finger on the parts of the consumer in the US. I think that's one of the biggest strengths because when you listen to the earnings calls, their perspective on a trillion dollars moving through their banks in every quarter almost. Perhaps you can give us a bit of a flavor of this earnings season and how you've seen it so far. What's the feel around the globe, around the economy, when you look at it from the perspective of the banks? I think the concern going into this earnings season was that recession was a risk. And banks, given the window they have into household 
finances would give us there on that. And actually it looks okay. One of the features of these bank results is that although earnings revisions are skewing downwards, we are seeing some downgrades. I think performance of bank stocks in the run-up had been so bad that there was a kind of a relief rally subsequently, and the stocks in the week or so subsequent to the uh, earnings season are up uh, kind of six, 7%, something in that order of magnitude. And that's largely because there was concern about kind of the consumer feeling the pain and so far, and clearly these things can change very quickly. We've seen no evidence of that. Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan, for example, said consumers are in good shape. He said they're spending money. We heard the same from City. City has said that consumers are spending well above pre-COVID levels. We heard from Bank of America. I talked earlier about the 35 million checking accounts that they have. They said US consumer remains quite resilient. But this word resilience was mentioned a number of times across these calls. Bill Demchek, who I said is definitely worth listening to, pushed right back. He said, and I'll quote this one. He said, investors, they're completely wrong about the banking system right now. If you look at the market cap that's been pulled out of the banking system and take your worst case reserve build and charge-offs, it's just wildly wrong. Yes, we'll have increased losses, but not anything close to like we put in during COVID. And then he went on to talk about the specific opportunities, competitive opportunities for PNC. Things can change. Overall, I think one highlight was resilience. But actually things can change and another highlight is uncertainty and the capital markets banks emphasized uncertainty a bit more. So Goldman Sachs, for example, spoke about a cautious tone because the environment's uncertain, very uncertain. We don't have a crystal ball to tell you exactly how monetary policy will navigate the inflationary environment that exists, they said. Again, back to JP Morgan. So Mike Mayo is an analyst who has a long history with Jamie Dimon. And he was pushing back on Jamie Dimon about this point of Jamie Dimon. He talked about a hurricane. He talked about the recession using the analogy of a hurricane and yet was talking nevertheless about investing for the future. So Mayo pushed this analogy talking, you know, if there's a hurricane on the horizon, why are you waxing the surfboard. Jamie Dimon's response was, again, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a range of potential outcomes, he said, from a soft landing to a hard landing. We're pointing out that the probabilities and possibilities of events are different, but he said he's waxing a surfboard because it's not going to change how we run the economy over a 10-year view. The, I'm going to change how we run the company. Over a 10-year view, the economy will be bigger. So I think two real themes. One, this notion about resilience of the consumer, no evidence yet. And that goes right down into delinquencies, debit and credit card spending, no kind of signs of consumer stress yet, but two, that there is uncertainty because the range of outcomes is complex. Definitely. That's why he moved from saying storm clouds are coming, hurricane is coming. And now I think in this earnings calls, from what I can read, it toned down a bit on that, but he says that. Currently, there are two perspectives. So the past perspective is currently, as we see things, the data, I think it was Citigroup CEO, uh, Jane Fraser was saying, 
the danger associated currently, we don't see issues to do with like delinquencies increasing or changes increasing or anything like that. But when you look ahead a bit into the future, we are a little worried about that. That's what I could pick my, from my perspective on the banks. Would you agree with that? And also perhaps maybe to find on that, I want to ask, they say that things are looking okay right now, but then JP Morgan cut off buybacks a bit. I think also Citigroup is doing the same. And you could sense it from the other teams that are trying to show up capital in that regard. How do you think they reconcile these two views so that they're able to handle the next couple of months and quarters? Okay, so I'll make two comments. The first one is that banks' earning statements are quite unique. They reflect, because of an accounting standard called CECL, CECL, because of an accounting standard that was introduced at the beginning of 2020 called CECL, they reflect the future. When a bank makes a loan, it has to provide for the possibility of loss embedded in that loan upfront. And if the scenario changes and they take a kind of weighted average, they look at different future paths and they take a kind of weighted average of where the economy may transition to. And they disclose actually all their underlying assumptions and all of that gets percolates down into a single number which is the provision they put against that loan at the point at which they make it. Now, if they get a little bit more bearish on the economy and Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan did, not in the second quarter, he did actually in the first quarter, did that one quarter ago. What he did was he nudged up the kind of the tail risk of the worst case recessionary scenario. I can't remember the exact numbers, maybe from 10% to 20%, but he nudged up that weighting. And that had an impact on provisions. And we saw that in the first quarter. It's a really important point because a traditional earning statement reflects the past. It's the earnings the company made last year. A balance sheet reflects the present, but a bank's earning statement actually kind of reflects the future because within that, there's this one line, this provisions for credit losses line, which embeds a view on the future. So that's kind of already in that. It's already in the earnings. So that's one point. Second point, you make a point about buybacks, which is a good point. They froze buybacks. The reason for that, I think, is less around, well, it kind of comes to the same point, really, which is that in addition to that forward-looking earnings point, the Fed does a stress test of all banks once a year, and it can put in there whatever it wants. It can put in there the most wildly bearish stress tests, which it has done. Again, Jamie Dimon come back to him a lot because he's so vocal. Push back on that. He says, you know, the Fed does one stress test. He does a hundred stress tests, but the Fed's stress test is bearish. Actually, he said COVID proves that because he said the Fed stress test says that when we're in a kind of recessionary environment, then trading activity declines as well. And he said, actually in COVID, that wasn't the case. We saw trading activity increased. The capital markets business did okay. So there was a, a kind of an offset there a hedge almost between those two businesses. But he said under no circumstances, wasn't the case in 2008 and it wasn't the case in 2020, will earnings develop in the way the Fed anticipates in their stress test. But nevertheless, banks go through the stress test that defines the capital they have to hoard against those potential stresses and they therefore have to flex their capital position according to that. And so they froze their buyback because they're kind of running up against the top end of that 
kind of capital buffer. That's basically that second point. As I say, Jamie Dunn pushed back. He said there are ways around that. You know, a capital ratio is also a function of the denominator. I, you're at balance sheet size. And he said there are ways of reducing that. There's various mitigation techniques they can employ. So that's a possibility that they could do, in which case they'd be able to turn the buyback back on. But it was, I think, a feature less of the company's view of the prospects and more on the Fed's view of how the bank is exposed to those prospects. Yes, and not just from the earnings call, Jamie Dimon was really furious about the stress tests and would love them gone as soon as yesterday. So maybe talking about the Fed, what impact is the raising of rates and of course the recession risk are having, especially on finance. So far, I know like some banks have benefited from the higher rates, somehow been hit pretty hard, less than like Wells Fargo in terms of their mortgage business. You'd expect banks to benefit from higher rates, but it's not always necessarily the case. What's your perspective on that? It's a fascinating tension. I wrote a piece back in January, a net interest piece on this point about banks' sensitivity to high rates. It's fundamentally a positive. They have huge deposit books. Deposit books grew through the pandemic. Actually, one of the reasons banks are now saying that consumers are resilient is because consumers have built up quite large liquidity buffers to protect themselves from a downturn and banks benefit from that through their deposit holdings. But as rates go up, then the value of those deposits goes up. A bank's deposit franchise is a low cost source of funding. And the advantage of that is higher when market rates are higher. And banks talk about kind of a beta. If rates go up hundred basis points, deposit rates don't have to go up hundred basis points. Maybe the beta is 25%. Deposit rates only have to go up 25 basis points. So banks, big beneficiaries of higher rates, but there's a tension because higher rates normally come alongside a deteriorating economic environment and, or they presage a deteriorating economic environment. And as a result, at the same time, it's difficult to disentangle the two, credit losses go up. So it's very difficult to disentangle them. There's a tension there. There's a benefit in net interest income. And certainly JP Morgan actually upgraded its estimate for net interest income. But the flip side is credit losses might go up and that's kind of the tension. And clearly investors don't buy a single line of the earnings statement. They're buying the entire earnings statement in aggregate. And that's the tension that's going on right now in stock markets. So from your overall perspective, any other the key points that we may have missed, especially to do with banks uh, from Q2 going into Q3 now. I think the focus will still be on them. I think maybe what's special about this, we haven't had a recession since 2008. Or maybe we had one in 2020, but we haven't had a mitigated recession since 2008. And the playbook that investors have reached for when looking at banks ever since 2008 has been that 2008 playbook, which is why Demcheck in this quote I talked about earlier, talking about it's not going to be that bad, which is why Jamie Dimon rails always against the amount of capital that he has to have, which is much higher than banks had in 2008. Banks have been trying to make this argument since 2010, 2011, coming out of that last financial crisis, that they deserve a lower cost of capital and ever a higher stock market rating because they're more resilient 
And the market, frankly, hasn't believed it. And they sold off hard in 2020. They recovered. They've sold off hard again now. It could be they almost need a recession to prove that they are resilient. And that's ultimately what could lead to some kind of re-rating. So some banks, they're not actively wishing it. Some on-calls have hinted at that. Certainly they talked about the competitive advantage that such an environment would give them, which is also true. But that's one thing to look at going forward. And then the other things are things that we discussed. I think second is consumer resilience. We get a snapshot once a month from credit card trust data, from securitization data, how credit card trusts are performing. So we get that data and banks talk intra-quarter at conferences. So we get consumer delinquency data once a month, quite a good data series. We get spending data actually kind of real time now. JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citi have got the biggest credit card businesses in the US. Huge amount of data there that we get. So we get that in real time. So right now, things are looking okay, but we'll know when that turns. And then the final point is at this point about uncertainty, which is more of a capital markets point. You know, Goldman Sachs actually said oh, that 2022 won't be as good as 21 because in 20 and 21, he says, we saw opportunities to deploy resources, serve our clients and expand the revenue opportunity. There was so much liquidity in the system. Clients wanted to do things and that's not as much the case in 2022. So those are the three points, really. I think uncertainty, just actually on that final point, can't remember which call it was, whether it was Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, there was pushback on this. Analysts often talk about when looking at capital markets business, kind of good volatility versus bad volatility. Good volatility, a little bit of volatility, which gets clients trading, helps trading activity, widens spreads on that trading activity. Bad volatility is when everyone's caught on the wrong side of it. And there's almost like a trading strike. And what we've seen recently is, has been good volatility. I can't remember if it's Morgan Stanley or Gomez. That's one that pushed back on that phraseology, but it could be no one wants a liquidity scare, which would be very negative, but a little bit of volatility is quite good. I think those are the things to look for. We look at volatility. We look at consumer spending. We get those both in real time. And that's what's going to feed into earnings as we go into the third quarter and beyond. Speaking of uh, volatility and its impact, I think this quarter has also been the quarter when across all banks, investment banking revenues have been hit pretty hard because people are not trading, markets are closed, no IPOs, investment banking deals are pretty low. What's your take on that? Is investment banking revenue such a significant part of these banks? And especially the major banks and their revenue. What's the exposure to that? And what's your take on, especially the decline? Does it have an impact, say, on would you maybe perhaps then foresee layoffs in these kind of markets, especially in this segment that are shaping the impacted? Or are they keeping the employees now and perhaps preparing for better times, hoping that this is a mild recession? Uh, I know BlackRock were very clear that they are cutting down on highs, especially in the senior level. So they are okay with putting at the junior level for now. Are they hunkering down for a recession that is about to happen? Yeah, it's a good, so on the investment banking side, banks are not especially exposed to pure investment banking revenues, M&A, equity, debt underwriting. And we saw record earnings in those segments in 21 anyway. It is inherently a very cyclical business. So downturns to be expected. Trading activities actually have held up quite well. Again, it was a record last year, but trading activities have held up quite well. The more exposed to that segment would be the pure play, smaller kind of investment banks, which just do advisory work. So that's 
kind of less of an issue, I think, but certainly it's a source of less capital intensive revenues, which will go into reverse. On the layoffs, to be honest, I don't know. It's a good question. I'd have to go and check actually to see. I wouldn't think it would be on a par with the tech sector, which was really at the forefront of that cycle. But for sure, there was additional recruiting but I'd have to go back and have a look to see what extent that actually took place. What are the key things you pay attention to when you're analyzing banks? Well, there are some classical ratios to look at, depending on the type of bank. If we're looking at a traditional lending bank, then the net interest margin is the spread they earn off their balance sheet, principally the loan book funded by the deposits. So we look at the net interest margin, but What's different about banks is that the earnings they book or the revenue, the net interest income they book in a single period isn't the end of the story because the loan loss, the cost of doing that business can come many quarters down the line and correlation can go up to close to one across what may appear to be uncorrelated lending assets in the event of a recession or something like that. The two ratios would be net interest margin. And we'd look at that against the cost of risk, the provisions, the loan losses. You can generate a high net interest margin, but the cost of that will be high loan losses. I wrote last week about Klarna and in the context that it was looked at by tech analysts as a tech company who looked at it on the basis of price to revenues and just as revenues, but the cost of those revenues come through loan losses, which have to be taken into account. So I adjusted for that in my analysis. So those are two ratios to look at. You can look at efficiency as well. People talk about the cost income ratio or the efficiency ratio. So those are the three ratios on the income statement. And then you'd look at the capital ratio, which is kind of a way of looking at leverage. There are various regulatory capital ratios to look at. So we look at those four ratios and the way to tell a good bank, again, a lending bank is really to go through its history and look at historically, has it priced credit correctly? I don't just look at the net interest margin versus the cost of risk today, go right back through history to see if they've been able to sustain a high risk adjusted margin over time. And that's a good way to understand a good bank. Well, one of the things that uh, we enjoyed reading your letters is, is the exchanges between Mike Mile and David Diver. Just before we talked, I was looking at one exchange strategy back in 2013, where David Diamond tells me that I had more money than you. I think you have a very nice story. You can't seat some of these kind of bad bad and we want between Diamond and Mike Mile. Any quick takes or fun takes on this? It's very good. It's very funny. It's almost like the meta play within the earnings season. So Mike Mayo, for those who don't know, is a bank's research analyst, currently at Wells Fargo Securities, where he covers the big banks, doesn't cover Wells Fargo, covers the other banks. But prior to that, he was a CLSA and he's been in the past at Credit Suisse. He's been at Deutsche Bank. He's been a prudential. He's a, a long time banks analyst. He's written a book and actually he refers to the earnings season, the kind of kabuki theater, where this kind of dance takes place between the analysts and the management for airtime. Often the analysts want to look, they want to often ingratiate themselves with management. They want to give the appearance of doing so in front of the investors who are their clients. 
who are listening to the call. There's a, a kind of a meme Twitter account called Great Quarter Guys, just the, the, the concept of Great Quarter. The piece you're talking about, there was another analyst who on the fourth quarter 2021 Morgan Stanley call was kind of praising the company, praising their strategy, you know, saying if more investors knew about this, there'd be a re-rating and the CEO comes back, oh, it'd be a $200 stock, my friend. All very chummy, all very close. Mike Mayo takes a slightly different stance and sees himself as being one of his jobs. And I should say, I've written another piece on equity research, the whole idea of equity research, what these analysts actually do. And it doesn't boil down to a simple task. You know, the kind of jobs to be done by an equity research analyst, it's about 10 different tasks. And each of them weight them differently. The one Mike Mayer rates very highly is management accountability. Traditionally, investment firms haven't paid for that. Why would they? It's not their kind of job too. It's a public good. But Mike Mayer, nevertheless, views uh, accountability as being what he strives to do. Uh, and so he asked some tough questions uh, and he did it again, as we said earlier on, on this earnings call, where he pointed out the inconsistency, Jamie Dimon talking about the hurricane or the storm on one side, and yet his heavy investment spend on the other. Look, I, I should say I've known Mark Mayer for a number of years. I used to be a client of his. There are lots of great analysts out there, uh, but for anyone kind of cold to the earnings season, uh, who's reading transcripts, then there is a history between him and Mark Mayer. They're Great to go straight to his questions, partly because of the accountability uh, issue, uh, but uh, partly because of that, that testy relationship he has with, with Jamie Dyson. Feels like friendly banter. Uh, at this point, they should be friends now. I would think so. Actually, actually, there was another case. So before we asked Fargo, Mike Mayer lost his job at his previous firm. And nevertheless, he's covered, I think, 120 different earnings seasons, you know, for a year for many, many years, 120 different earning seasons. So addicted is he and compulsive is he to earning seasons that even when he lost his job, he turned up on the calls as an independent analyst. And he asked Jamie Diamond a question and Jamie Diamond, to be fair, was very encouraging, uh, probably gave him a good reference. Um, but I mean, that's why we love earnings season at the end of the day. It's a time to get a, a good feel of how the economy is doing. And again, just before the rest of the company's report, you can get a bit of analysis on how the consumer is doing and faring. Uh, so for me, I think this earnings season, the question is recession. That's like with a question mark at the end, that would be like the theme of this earnings season. And the other thing that I've also noticed so far is that if things are not as bad as people expected, then your stock will rise. That happens to a lot of the big banks. So if you're not making as many provisions as people expected, or if your Netflix and you lost fewer customers than people expected, then your stock would uh, definitely uh, be positively received at the end. My take on this end of season is going to be not as bad as expected. I think that would be any closing thoughts on today? No, that's good, Eric. I mean, as you said, it's great whether you're doing the transcript, because as you said, the companies now are so polished in terms of the way they present their earnings. There's been lots of talk, it kind of came to a head with community adjusted earnings with WeWork, but the way they actually present and market their earnings, so polished, so tailored, so staged, and also with their prepared remarks on these calls. But it's through the Q&A where clearly they've rehearsed, but it's through the Q&A where they're not reading off a script, where, you know, they'll say something like Demcheck said this time. Uh, around the uh, environment and the way he thinks the market is uh, valuing banking stocks. 
like Jamie Dimon has done, that's when some of the interesting nuggets come. And, you know, it's great work that you do actually bringing that to the full. Yeah. We really enjoy the Q&A section. We just like it when, let's say, companies like Netflix jump straight to the Q&A. The prepared remarks are in the quarterly letter and the Q&A just gives you a feeling of exactly what they're thinking. And occasionally they sleep up and actually tending what exactly they think about a lot of things. Uh, we do enjoy the transcript that. And thank you also for joining us. We hope we can do this again next quarter. But the banks have another great quarter, hopefully. So thank you, Mark. And uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Eric.